Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Why is it that some men, or even women for that matter, feel there is no way out of a marriage except for murder? There are many reasons. Usually the reasons we hear about are due to money, control, or both. Sometimes it's about jealousy or betrayal, but in a way that is about control as well. Unfortunately, there are plenty of murders just like the one in this episode where we can ponder the why to this. Why didn't you just get a divorce? Why couldn't you give up part of the money or the property or whatever else you thought was so important? This episode is about a controlling and emotionally abusive spouse who didn't want to deal with the messiness of divorce, including the division of finances, the arrangements for the children, and ultimately the lack of control. He wanted to move on, but he didn't want his wife to. Later, we'll also touch on another murder that took place just five years earlier in the same area, the circumstances being so similar in that both of the killers were aged 40, both of their wives were in their late 30s, and both had three kids. They also had similar careers, and they both felt they had no option but murder. This is a true crime podcast. This episode contains details of real murders and other violence. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Friends, family, and coworkers describe Robert Durrell's behavior towards his wife Carolyn as controlling and extremely jealous. He forbade Carolyn from opening a separate bank account and seized a credit card she obtained individually. He monitored her phone calls, went through her wallet and her private email account. Carolyn also expressed fear both verbally and in writing of her husband's controlling and jealous behavior. In her desk at work, she kept letters and a diary and told her closest friend about them. She obviously did not feel they were safe to keep at home. On the morning of August 7th, a neighbor said she noticed the master bedroom window all closed up. The house seemed to be sealed up tight. This was unusual for the family. A little later that day, she went to visit Carolyn, but no one was home. That same day, a co-worker called Renton Police in the afternoon, when Carolyn didn't show up for work, and they could not reach her by phone. Her co-workers called her husband, Bob, who said she left for work at the usual time, and he had no idea why she was not at work. So they called the police who went out to the house and they found nothing amiss. They knock on the door, but there was no answer. They find an unlocked door and they go in. No one is at home and everything is tidy. Carolyn's toiletries and clothing are still there. For two days though, there is still no sign of Carolyn. Police get a report of a van driving erratically that is a close description of Carolyn's van. The witness got the license plate number and it was identified as Carolyn's van. However, the witness could not say who was driving because she never got a good look at the driver. Friends distributed missing persons flyers and a convenience store clerk responded and said she saw Carolyn the day after she disappeared. She said she was sure she had seen her Saturday evening and that she had purchased gas with cash and left. Bob Durrell told police he was looking for clues to where Carolyn might have been. He found some information on his wife's computer and he turned it over to the police. There was evidence that she was talking to a man online and had developed a relationship with him. There were emails and chat room conversations. 
There was also some talk between them about running away together. Police interviewed the man, and he told them he had not seen Carolyn for at least six months. At the time of Carolyn's disappearance, Bob was 40 and Carolyn 36. They had three kids, ages 9, 7, and 4. They had been married for 12 years. Life in the marriage was far from perfect. Carolyn loved to cook. Bob ate only health food, organic vegetables, and no red meat. Carolyn went to extra effort to make things for Bob that accommodated his diet. She loved to bake and would bake for her children and friends, but she couldn't bake for Bob. She would bring co-workers food to the office, things like homemade scones and raspberry jam. As a girl, Carolyn was obsessed with horses. She learned how to ride early on. For most of her life, Carolyn owned her own horse. She loved horses. When she was 36, her horse was named Drizzle. She kept him in stables near her house and rode him whenever she could. Carolyn was slender, on the taller side at 5'7", and very pretty. Carolyn met Robert Durall, who went by Bob, in the mid-80s. They both worked for a real estate firm in Bellevue, Washington. He was 25, and she was 21. Bob was intelligent and a high achiever. He was a National Merit Scholar in high school. He had two college degrees, a bachelor's in accounting and a bachelor's in computer science. He was attractive and slim and around 5'10". Carolyn was more outgoing than Bob, but that was fine with Carolyn. She thought their personalities complemented each other at first. Their honeymoon didn't go very well. They argued a lot. She got the feeling for the first time that he was a man used to getting exactly as he wanted. So as early as the honeymoon, she had thoughts that maybe she shouldn't have married him. Still, she wanted to give the marriage a chance, and as they went on, she decided their issues were probably similar to any couple trying to adjust to living with each other full-time. She ended up trying to learn how to do things the way he wanted to please him all the time. She thought that he would reciprocate. However, she found that he would have his way and he wanted her to defer to him on decisions. Carolyn worked full-time until they had their first child, a boy, in 1989. A few months later, she felt again that she shouldn't have married Bob, but then she found she was pregnant again. She had a second son in 1991. Carolyn loved her babies, but her marriage was not a good one. Bob suggested marriage counseling. He picked the therapist, and she agreed to go. None of the sessions went well. They just gave Bob more time to point out what was wrong with her. None of it helped their marriage, and and Carolyn came away with the feeling that she just didn't measure up to Bob's expectations. She tried to make him happy, but it seemed nothing was ever good enough. They went to the same church Bob attended while growing up. Bob taught Sunday school, and Carolyn joined the church as well, and they were both active there. Neighbors from where they had their first house thought they seemed happy enough. They participated in neighborhood gatherings, and one neighbor said he found Bob to be a cocky guy, but he said he had the feeling, is anybody there when he talked to him? It was as if he wasn't really listening. Carolyn, on the other hand, seemed to be a person who genuinely cared about other people. Carolyn started babysitting for her best friend Denise's daughter, 
when she went back to work part-time in a job-sharing program at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Denise and her husband Gary Janish would get together with Carolyn and Bob. The Janishes found Bob to be a bit of an odd guy. He was a health nut, a compulsive jogger, into meditation, and strange ethereal music. The Janishes and the Durrells' homes were close in the same neighborhood, and their children played together. They felt sorry for Carolyn when she had to scurry to make sure Bob had his special foods before she could relax on their mutual vacations. Bob seemed to control every aspect of Carolyn's life. In 1992, Denise's job share partner left, and she asked Carolyn if she wanted the job. That way, they would both have a good job, but they would each only have to work part-time, which gave them more time with their families. Carolyn became pregnant again. It was an unplanned pregnancy, and Bob wanted her to get an abortion. Carolyn wouldn't even consider it. The marriage was struggling by 1994, but Carolyn still wanted her baby. This time, it was a girl. Bob came around and started to dote on his daughter. By all opinions, he adored her. Carolyn stayed home for a few months and then went back to work. They had three kids, and Carolyn was working part-time, but Bob did not help much at home. Carolyn mowed the lawn and took care of the children. Neighbors saw her do most everything around the house, inside and out. It was also noted by some that Bob verbally abused Carolyn. By January of 1998, Carolyn was working full-time for the investment firm. She and Denise were both assistants to executives. It worked out well as Carolyn had her daughter in a daycare right across the street from her office. Morgan Stanley was a friendly place to work, and Carolyn fit right in. The Janices and the Durrells spent more and more time together. Gary and Bob worked at the same company, and they often carpooled. When Gary drove, he couldn't turn on his music because Bob wanted the car quiet. Bob had to have things his way. When the two families went camping together, Carolyn had to see to all the details while Bob hiked or relaxed. Around the house, Bob acted as if he had a maid to clean up after him. He never cooked for his family, and whenever he did make something for himself, he wouldn't clean up afterwards. When he peeled an orange, for example, he would leave the peels on the counter or in the sink. Carolyn took care of all the haircuts, doctor appointments, and dental appointments, and was the one to take the kids to soccer or baseball practice. She was also a Cub Scout leader. Her friends noticed she never sat down. If the kids didn't need her, Bob usually did. Carolyn admitted to Denise that she felt that Bob controlled her. When Carolyn drank one beer at a company picnic, Bob chastised her as if she had gotten sloppy drunk. One time early in their marriage, Bob had picked her up and put her in the car when she didn't want to leave a party they were at. She was humiliated. Bob would go on to behave this way, deciding abruptly when he wanted to leave somewhere and expecting Carolyn to immediately agree and go with him. A particularly memorable time had been when they went to visit Carolyn's parents on an island on Puget Sound that they were vacationing at. They drove separate cars that day. For some reason, Bob announced abruptly that he wanted to leave right then. He told her to get everything packed in her car so they could take the early ferry. He took their two boys and drove off, while Carolyn was still scrambling around for the diaper bag, toys, Bob's special food, and supplies, and packed them in the car. 
She got in the car with her baby girl and then raced to catch up to her husband and two sons. When she got there, Bob was parked way up first in line. She waved to him, but he just looked back at her and laughed. He drove up onto the ferry without her. He saw the gates close behind him before she was able to get on. He knew she would have to wait hours for the next one. When Bob worked at IPC, he was having an affair with a woman that also worked there. Most people at the company were aware that they were having an affair. When Bob broke up with this other woman, she suffered a nervous breakdown and ended up losing her job. Bob also ended up leaving IPC. No one seemed to know for sure if Carolyn ever knew about this. Bob moved on to become the supervisor of the computer division of the King County Housing Authority. To placate Bob over the years, Carolyn had given away little pieces of herself until she had virtually no power left. Their marriage was all about making Bob happy, which wasn't really possible. It was a relief for Carolyn when Bob went away on business trips. She could wear whatever comfortable clothes she wanted and let the kids mess up the house a little. Bob wasn't there to give her looks of disapproval. Sadly, the kids probably felt freer when he was gone as well. It was a relief for Carolyn when Bob went away on business trips. She could wear whatever comfortable clothes she wanted and let the kids mess up the house a little. Bob wasn't there to give her looks of disapproval. Sadly, the kids probably felt a little freer, too, when he was gone. Carolyn had told Denise that she dreaded going home after work. She wanted to be with her kids, but she did not look forward to dealing with Bob. Even though it was Bob that was involved with other women, he was very jealous of Carolyn. He constantly suspected her of cheating on him, as is often the case with cheaters, but for the first 12 years she spent married to him, she was faithful. Then in 1997, she met a man who was exceptionally kind to her and made her feel like an intelligent and valuable person. She'd spent time with him, a man who really liked her. She began having lunch with this other man. No one knows if this relationship ever got physical, but it did make her realize that now, in her late 30s, her whole life should not be about bending to Bob's will. The other man gave her a glimpse of what life could be like without walking on eggshells all the time. Trying to placate the man she was married to, not upset him, or at least not too much. She wanted to have the life free of this, but she didn't want to have it sneaking around. Her conscience wasn't able to deal with that. She wanted to find love, and she hoped she wasn't too late. She didn't want to have a long-term extramarital affair, and so she broke off the lunch dates with her new friend. She started to think seriously about divorce. She got books on divorce about whether a marriage was still able to be saved or if it was too late and it was time to jump ship. One book that helped her decide was called Too Good to Leave, Too Bad to Stay. Carolyn started making preparations to leave Bob. This was slow going because she was working up the courage to actually do it. She had opened a bank account and had squirreled away some money into it. There was only just under $1,000 by the summer of 1998. She was also doing the calculations to see if she and the children could survive on her salary plus child support. Carolyn told her friends at work that she was going to ask Bob for a divorce. It was summertime and one of the kids was with the grandparents, the other two were at camp. She felt this was a good time to talk to Bob so that the kids would not be around when she asked him for a divorce. 
She did not want them to hear any of it or deal with any of the backlash. She didn't expect Bob to be nice about this at all. When she left work that night, she asked a co-worker to wish her luck as that was going to be the night. And that was the last time the co-workers saw her. A week had passed since Carolyn's disappearance, and she had not contacted her husband, children, or friends. She also had not contacted the man who she had been involved with. Her friend Denise knew there was something wrong. No way would Carolyn leave her children like that and not contact her mother or the kids, or Denise herself. To friends and neighbors, Bob did not appear to be making any effort to find his wife. During this time, he sometimes spoke negatively about her. He told one neighbor that Carolyn smoked and even yelled at the children. He told another neighbor he was sure she was unfaithful in 1997 and that she had been on chat rooms talking to men. He did not seem worried at all about Carolyn. Carolyn had told co-workers that if something happened to her, her life was in her desk. They took her seriously when she went missing and opened the drawers. They found the diary which spoke of her fears of Bob and the life she had been dealing with. There was also a draft of a letter to Bob explaining why she needed to end their marriage. A detective Kittleson was able to read the diary and knew that Carolyn had planned to ask for a divorce that night after work. Bob told the detective they went out to dinner that night, but nothing untowards happened, and she had given no indication that she was leaving him. When detectives asked Bob, however, to have a look to see what clothes of Carolyn's might be missing, Bob told them he would get back to them. He then hired an attorney. When detectives asked if they could search the house, Bob's attorney said that a search of the house would make a worried husband of a missing woman more stressed. So the police would not be able to search the house without a warrant. Bob kept saying that she left him and her kids. No one who knew her well believed she would leave her children, no matter how unhappy she was in her marriage. Her friends continued to pass out flyers and make phone calls. They organized search parties. On Wednesday, August 19th, they found Carolyn's wine-colored van at the Radisson Hotel. It was parked in the back of the hotel and near the airport. Looking in the windows, they didn't see anything that would indicate something violent had happened. This was almost two weeks after Carolyn Durrell went missing, and the thought, of course, was that she could have been parked there and got on a plane. Carolyn had not used any credit cards, made or received any calls on her cell phone, she did not buy any airline tickets, and she had not stayed in the hotel where the car was found. She had not accessed her bank account either. There was no sign at all of where she had gone. No one who knew her had heard from her. The van was taken to the police headquarters to be processed. They asked Bob again what happened the night before Carolyn disappeared. He said they had gone out to dinner, and then when they were at home, Carolyn talked to her sister-in-law on the phone. The sister-in-law talked to the police about what was said on the phone. Carolyn had told her that Bob had just fixed her a drink and she was going to bed soon. Carolyn sounded a little tipsy, and the sister-in-law was concerned because it was not like Bob to fix his wife a drink. It was more like the other way around. It was very atypical for Bob to serve his wife any type of food or drink. August 21, 1998, a search warrant was issued to search the Durrell home. They found the carpet in the master bedroom looked odd and found that pieces had been cut out and replaced with the same carpet. 
They pulled up the patch section, and on the wood underneath was a dark stain that looked like it could be blood. They did a quick test that showed it was positive for human blood. Next, they sprayed luminol on the walls and baseboards. There were blood spray patterns in medium velocity, indicating someone had been hit with a hard object. If they were shot, it would be a higher velocity spray. There was also streaks going along the baseboards to the bathroom. Someone had been dragged from the bedroom to the bathroom, most likely. There were more blood streaks found from the doorway going into the garage. The blood found was Carolyn's type. They then compared the DNA found in the bedroom to the DNA of Carolyn's parents and found that it was her blood. If Carolyn was still alive, she would have lost a lot of blood, so much so that she would have been in critical condition and almost impossible to have survived. August 22nd, Detective Gary Kittleson went to Bob Durrell's mother's house and arrested him. He was charged with second-degree murder, pled not guilty, and held without bail. His mother got church members to stand behind him and rally for him, writing letters about his good character. Bob had his attorney working to get him out on bail. The prosecutors felt if any bail was set, it should be high. They asked for a million dollars. They said he was a danger to the community and a flight risk. Bail was set at one million. Bob Durrell would not tell them where Carolyn's body was, claiming he did not know. Among the items taken from the Durrell home search were computers, and, of course, Bob's work computer was also eventually looked into. Searches were found by Bob on how to kill his wife. These searches included kill spouse, poisons, smother, homicide, and accidental deaths. This had all been deleted from the computer, but computer forensic experts at the police station were able to find them. Bob was also on dating sites. He had been communicating with women under his online name as Freedom, with three E's. Freedom. Deleted items on his computer that were found showed that Bob was dating other women at the same time Carolyn was meeting the man she was involved with. His last active date on the dating site was August 5th, one day before Carolyn went missing. The more they found on the computers, the more they had on Bob Durrell. He had been working on a plan to murder his wife since May of that year. His charges were changed to first-degree murder, and his bail raised to $5 million on August 28th. There was a gallon of solution designed to get rid of all signs of human fluids found in the garage. A receipt for the purchase of this product was found in his car. On a Monday in September, Bob led them to the body of his wife. He had made an agreement with his lawyer and the prosecutors. They told him that they would not mention, during his trial, that he was the one that led them there. They drove out on the 90 freeway through the foothills heading east and climbing up near North Bend. Bob pointed out the location of Carolyn's body down a heavily forested road. She was in a shallow grave covered by a pile of rocks. The autopsy revealed that she had died of blunt force trauma just as the evidence had suggested. Her skull had been shattered in several places. The weapon would have had to be made of metal or heavy wood, most likely a baseball bat. 
Bob Durrell had done a lot of planning and made a lot of searches on how to do the perfect murder, but it looked like rage had taken a hold of him, probably due to Carolyn telling him she wanted a divorce. Instead of making it look like an accident or using poison or even smothering, he had lost control and committed murder with homicidal violence. He most likely used the closest weapon on hand. Prosecutors believe Bob had drugged Carolyn to make her drowsy, although toxicology tests were inconclusive. Bob killed Carolyn, violently hitting her with a blunt object, then wrapped her body in plastic and carried it to the garage, leaving the blood smear on the door. He dumped her body in the ravine near the Cascade Mountains and returned home to clean up the crime scene. Police think that it was Bob driving Carolyn's van, to the hotel parking lot when the witness saw it driving erratically that day. And they think the store clerk was simply mistaken about the woman in her store that day, or she was mistaken about the day she saw Carolyn. The video from the store that evening had been pulled, and Carolyn was nowhere on the tape. Even though Bob had led them to the body, he pled not guilty during his trial, and even took the stand in his own defense. He told a crazy story about two men who had killed Carolyn and forced him to dispose of her body and go back to the house and clean up. They said that they would kill him and his children if he told the police. It's hard to imagine that anyone took this story seriously. There was so much forensic evidence that it was not hard to convict Bob Durrell. Bob was sentenced to 46 years and eight months in prison. Freedom was no longer free. Durrell cried while the judge called it a case of aggravated domestic violence preceded by a pattern of psychological abuse. While in jail, Robert Durrell had tried to hire someone to kill the man he thought had been Carolyn's lover, and at the same time pin Carolyn's murder on this man. Bob started to recruit another inmate, Elmer Clark, who had no money. Bob started by making him believe they were real friends, and putting money in Elmer's commissary account so he could buy snacks, toiletries, and other things he needed. Bob knew the name of the man who had been Carolyn's friend, and he told Elmer about it. He laid out a plan for Elmer, who was getting out soon. Bob told Elmer he would pay him a lot of money for this job when he got out, and they both would remain friends outside of prison. Bob wanted him to attack this man and tie him up. The plan was to force the man, whom he believed to be Carolyn's lover, to write a letter of confession, lick a stamp and the envelope, thus placing his DNA on the letter via saliva, and mail it to the police. The letter was supposed to be mailed from out of state, so it looked as though the man was on the run. Then the hired killer was to drive him out to a remote area, kill him, and bury the body. Elmer Clark was doing time for third-degree assault, taking a car without permission, and evading arrest. Clark told his lawyer about the crime Bob wanted him to perpetrate, and also said he had no intention of going through with the murder. The lawyer then informed the police, and he also told them how Bob had admitted to him that he killed his wife. Carolyn's parents were raising the kids, and the judge imposed a no-contact order to Bob. He could only contact them through their guardian and the prosecutor's office. A beautiful flowering pink cherry tree was planted in the park where the neighborhood kids played in honor of Carolyn. 
There was a butterfly on the program at the memorial service, as Carolyn loved butterflies. The minister reminded the mourners that Carolyn was no longer caged, but as free now as a butterfly. After services at church, Morgan Stanley Dean Witter held a reception in honor of Carolyn. She was and is missed. Five years before Robert Durrell killed his wife and then reported her missing, another computer expert did the same. On Christmas Eve in 1993, Stephen Long went down to the police station and reported that his wife had been gone for five days and he was now concerned. They had had an argument and she had left. It was Christmas Eve and she was still not back yet. It would be almost two years before they would find out what happened to his wife, Elvira. Stephen and Elvira lived on Mercer Island. Stephen was 40 and Elvira 38. They had three children and lived in a nice ranch-style home. Stephen was a former IBM employee and a private computer consultant. A week after Long reported his wife had left, the case was assigned to a detective Ken Wegner, an officer who handled the department's youth crime and most of the missing persons cases on the island. Wegner sent out a national teletype and then called Stephen Long and left a message for him on his answering machine. A week later, he was able to meet with Long and get credit card and bank account information from him. Long did not appear nervous and seemed forthcoming about the couple's marital problems. He said his wife had gotten mad after finding a Victoria's Secrets catalog he had hidden away. Long showed the detective an ATM transaction with a withdrawal shown from a machine in Issaquai the day his wife disappeared. Long said he did not make the withdrawal. Two of their children said they thought they had seen their mother on a dark and rainy night a couple days after she went missing. Wagner checked with hotels, bus stations, hospitals, and medical examiner's offices. He called her family in Texas, got her dental records, and went to the battered women's shelters. He talked to her friends, relatives, and even her hairdresser. Most that knew Elvira said she was a loving mother who would not run away and leave her children. Nothing he found, though, indicated foul play, and the only thing that was suspicious was that she had left her children and had not contacted them at all. From everything he had learned about her, she would not do this. He went back and talked to Stephen about this. Stephen told him about one time on a drive to California, Elvira had tried to jump out of a moving car during an argument they were having. Another time, she created a huge scene when they were in Europe. Wegner found no reason to think it was anything other than a standard missing person case, and he made his last note in the file on February, in February 1994. In June of 1994, Detective Jonathan Crane took over his open case files. Crane did not open the file until October 1994. Newer cases usually took precedence over older cases. Detective Crane called Maria Freestone, Elvira Long's sister, who lived in Houston. He learned that Stephen had filed for divorce in June and was marrying again to Anna Pavlova of Russia. The flags went up big time. Six months after Elvira went missing, Stephen was filing for divorce and planning to marry a much younger wife, only 23 years old. He had met her through an international dating service. Crane called Stephen Long and arranged to meet him at the police station on December 6th. 
In the interim, he spoke with local friends of Elvira's, and one in particular who was close to her told him that she had always suspected foul play. She also told him Elvira was very dedicated to her children and would not leave them like this. Long did not show up for the December 6th meeting, so Crane went to his home and set up an appointment for two days later. Long was very disturbed by the interview and even wrote a complaint to the Mercer Island Director of Public Safety. In the complaint, he wrote, Crane has a strongly held theory that I killed my wife. Crane's note in the file on this complaint was, I find this illuminating. However, Crane had nothing else to go on in this case and was also handling the investigation of a home invasion robbery. In October 1995, Crane left for a job offer in Colorado. Detective Lacey took over his open cases. He decided to check in on the long case. He interviewed the oldest daughter, who was now 15, and learned that Elvira Long had cooked dinner every night, and everyone was to be at the table together for dinner. The night before she disappeared, Elvira had stayed in her bedroom during dinner. He also learned Elvira was still nursing an 18-month-old baby at the time she disappeared. Her daughter told the detective that her parents had been fighting that night in their room when suddenly it got quiet. Stephen Long later came out and told his daughter to cook dinner that night. At this point, Island Police asked the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force to take over. There was a nine-month investigation that ended when Long was arrested in Canada. He had $55,000 in cash and was planning to immigrate to New Zealand to start a new life. Stephen Long was charged with second-degree murder. Long led authorities to a ravine near North Bend where they found the skeletal remains of his wife. North Bend was the same area that Bob Durrell had hid his wife's body. He too led the police to the remains after being arrested. During the time Elvira was missing, Stephen had divorced her, married the young woman from Russia, and had a new baby, and all of this in the same home he had shared with his wife and children, the same house in which he had murdered his wife. During trial, it came out that Long had searched the internet back then for ways to kill his wife. When he finally admitted to killing his wife and led them to her remains, he made a statement that he had accidentally killed her during sex. This was a story he put together from researching how to kill her and get away with it. The cause of death was found to be strangulation. Long was convicted of second-degree murder and first-degree perjury. The perjury charge was from when he lied on his application for a divorce and said his wife had abandoned the family. He was sentenced to 21 years. I couldn't find anything on what happened to Stephen Allen Long after this. Presumably he would be out of prison by now, but a lot of things could have happened. Thank you once again for listening and sharing with a friend. Until next time, stay safe. You can find me at Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast.com and also Facebook under Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast as well as Instagram under Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast.